Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Felix Behrenskötter, senior lecturer in international relations at SOAS University of London and board member of the EISA. Welcome to this episode of Voices, where we are discussing how digital technologies shape practices in international politics and how we might study them. My name is Felix Behrenskötter, and I will be hosting this episode. The ever-growing and seemingly pervasive presence of digital technologies, now often lumped under the term artificial intelligence or AI, creates excitement and anxieties alike. We are dependent on AI. Few of us can imagine a life without computers or the internet. But at the same time, the rapid development of these technologies operating them also raises fears that humanity is losing control over them. So we thought it would be a good idea to talk about how scholars of international relations can study the nature and operation of digital technologies and their impact on practices of governance. And to do that, I am delighted to have Professor Claudia Aradau as my guest today. Claudia is Professor of International Politics at King's College London and also the Principal Investigator of a major European grant exploring the practices of border security in the digital age. She has been working in the area of critical security studies and international political sociology for a long time and made important contributions to debates in these fields, as indicated by a long list of publications. Most relevant for our discussion here is the book that she co-authored with Tobias Blanke called Algorithmic Reason, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022 and which also won an award by the ISA's Science, Technology and Arts in International Relations section. So, as you would expect, there is plenty of expertise in the room today. Welcome, Claudia, to Voices. And if you don't mind, let's get started with a basic question. In a nutshell, why should students of world politics pay attention to technology? I think uh, international relations students have always paid attention to technology. So, if you look at all IR theories, paradigm, however you want to approach the discipline, terms and so on, there's always technology. There are always weapons, there are always material resources and so on. And I remember, and I think many students of international relations remember their introduction to constructivism with the kind of famous by now example that Alex Wendt gave of nuclear weapons, that 500 British nuclear weapons wouldn't be as threatening to the United States as five, whatever, North Korean nuclear weapons, right? So there's always technology, but the question is, how do we study it? Right. And here, of course, technology somehow succumbs right to the intersubjectivity, to the ideas, to the kind of discursive 
rendition and representation of what technology does. And it seems to me that this is where we see today the research on technology, whether it's digital technology or all kinds of technologies, actually intervening in the discipline uh, by challenging, um, in a sense, these two different approaches that see technology either as a kind of extension of instrumentality, something that can be uh, controlled, or technology itself a sort of variable, kind of pre-existing, pre-given that more or less autonomously shapes other practices. And in that sense, I would see the way I ask scholars engage now with technology and the way we need to engage with it as methodological in the sense in which we question what technology does. How does it work? How it doesn't work? And what its effects are? How does it, what does it do to different actors involved in international politics? How does it enact different subjectivities? How does it intervene in the constitutions and reproduction of hierarchies in international politics? And I think that it is here that scholars have actually drawn on critical IR by taking or kind of working with concepts such as performativity, such as enactment, to uh, move or actually to include technology and objects as also being enacted, being performed in the ways in which, you know, critical IR scholars have thought about, you know, gender, subjectivity, identity, and so on as being enacted. And they have drawn inspiration, I think, to some extent from science and technology studies. And again, there's a kind of whole range of, you know, methods and ways in which to, to study it. But in, you know, in a nutshell, I think is to understand the political effects that technology has without, you know, presuming that we know these effects from the, from the get-go. So we've always been exposed to and affected by technological innovation and developments. I mean, of course, uh, we can think of, you know, the invention of the wheel, the steam engine, the splitting of the atom. Um, so this raises a question, however, what, if anything, is different with digital technologies? Are we seeing a new worlds of politics shaped by big data or AI? I take issue with the new. Right, we always kind of tend to um, think about the new in the work that we do. That's a kind of a quest for novelty and so on. But one needs to also be careful about this, you know, techno enthusiast discourses or also techno catastrophes. Right, we have two types of the enthusiastic and the catastrophist discourses. The ones at the same time who claim that AI changes the world, it changes, um, you know, changes everything, but potentially it brings a catastrophe, or it could lead to a catastrophe. Um, and I think both of these are problematic, but the question of the new is an important one because I think it's at the heart of many debates, not just in international relations, but I would say across the social sciences and humanities about what digital technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether are forms of algorithmic governance, what do they do to the world? And what do they do to how we live today? And I think we have seen two kinds of responses. One, which actually similarly takes issue with the new by saying there's nothing new in these technologies. Um, but not because we have always used technology and we can go back to the kind of relation with nature, right? And the kind of use of um, tools and domination of nature and domination of other people. We have a kind of whole mode of analysis that rejects the new in order to trace these continuities um, in relation to oppression, domination, kind of histories of colonialism and imperialism, where 
in a sense, if digital technologies do something different today, it is only by amplifying or intensifying right, these inequalities and these lineages, lineages of colonialism and imperialism. And the second, of course, the second answer is that um, these technologies are actually doing something very different, that they are, without kind of accepting the novelty, that indeed that they could lead to new new modes of oppression. There are discussions of algocracy. Uh, you know, we see a little bit some of these debates around autonomous little weapons, the transformation of international law, the undoing of even the kind of limited kind of rules, norms, uh, practices that are there. With these technologies, have the potential to undo them. And here, there's a focus on. The new, but the new, in a sense, is an undoing, as a discontinuity that kind of emerges through the through the epistemic power that these technologies have. And in the book that you mentioned, an algorithmic reason, Tobias Blank and I try to trace, I think, what is a, a path in between the two to take a Foucauldian path to bring the continuity and the discontinuity to try to hold it together. Do you think? Of course, we cannot deny that that these technologies do something different. And we focused in particular on the government of populations. So if I could ask, who would you say has done important work in this area? Or more concretely, could you give us some examples of publications that sparked your attention and helped you to think through the issue? I think there are many scholars who do really exciting work at the intersection of technology and politics. And I am more familiar with the literature that has been working at the intersection of science and technology studies and critical security studies. But I think that's a broader, you know, much broader field of engagement with feminist postcolonial work that also intersects with science and technology studies and critical security studies. Um, but maybe I can mention a few articles and books that have, you know, made particular interventions in time, both on technology and maybe kind of turning closer towards the present. Of course, we get we get more work on digital technology as well. Um, one of the first things that came to mind was actually back in 2006, an article by Martin Coward, which included the built environment into kind of conceptualizations of um, political violence, right? And it was a I think it was called, I guess, anthropocentrism. And this was really formative for me because it, you know, it made me think about um, infrastructure, about materiality in relation to violence and security. And more recently, I'm thinking of Katya Linskov-Jakobsen's work on the use of biometric technologies by humanitarian actors and also the intersections between humanitarianism and militarism through the circulations of digital technologies and particularly biometric data flows from these. And what she also does, I think, really interestingly in her work, she takes this issue of, you know, unproven, untested technologies and kind of laboratories where these technologies are being developed and used and therefore tested often in the global south. So she also works with the concept of living laboratories and taking this line of conceptual work with particularly with questions of, you know, laboratories, the tested, the untested, the the differences that, you know, technologies make in terms of where they are deployed and upon which populations they are deployed. I was also thinking about an article um, 
collaboratizing the border by Mike Bourne, um, Heather Johnson, and Debbie Lyle, which zooms in on the role of scientists and engineers and their production of technologies as bordering technologies before actually people cross the border. Okay, so let's move to your own work. Um, why and how did you become interested in this topic? I mean, much of your work critically probes security practices of different kind, but what prompted you to do research in the field of technology? Yeah, it's interesting that you link it to critique. And in a sense, I think that's a thread that, that runs through my work and also grappling with what critique is and what it means to engage critically with some of these um, with some of these practices. And I think I came to technology partly because I I thought in a lot of um, security discourses, so much was taken for granted about technology, about what it does and what it can do. And then I stumbled, I think that was a really serendipitous encounter. I don't fully remember the context in which I stumbled upon Karen Barad's work. And what was unexpected for me in reading Karen Barad at the time was that, you know, she, she basically stated that language had been given too much power. And although I was aware of feminist work engaging with technology and so on, the way she formulated it and then the way she engaged with technology as, you know, emergence through these processes of intra-action rather than interaction was really challenging to me. And I tried to grapple, I mean, that That's how I started to grapple with questions of technology, particularly around um, critical infrastructure protection. Again, very much a discourse that um, appeared to be quite taken for granted. You know, it was repeated by security professionals again and again. And I wanted to unpack what that meant in the sense in which, you know, infrastructures actually part of how people live their lives. We need to rely on a whole lot of infrastructures. But of course, the securitization of infrastructures actually effaced, interacted a particular mode of infrastructuring while effacing, for instance, education, health. I mean, this is not in the, the earlier work, but that's when I started to engage more with the feminist work in asking questions about which infrastructures matter. So this was, I think, part Of, you know how I started in a sense my encounter, and then I moved I moved away and moved a bit more towards science and technology studies, partly because in my earlier work I kind of struggled a bit with the assumptions to the kind of um, the physics that kind of informed the way Barad read practices, and I was drawn more towards science and technology studies that I think had much more resonance with critical approaches in international relations, both in terms of intersections with um, you know, work on performativity, on practice, uh, work on gender, work on racialization, um, work on knowledge, the, the kind of epistemic elements. So why, if I can ask this question, why did you decide to focus on algorithms? So I use algorithms, they're a bit, they can be a bit of a tongue twister, so, <laughs> particularly when you try to use it in an as an adjective algorithmic, I know that kind of, um, that's, that's a little bit difficult, but I used algorithms um, in the sense of an, of an assemblage as holding together a whole range of practices. And there are different reasons why I focused on algorithms. We have many vocabularies that 
intersect that try to capture something about digital technologies and uh, you know their political effects, particularly um, in terms of international politics. Right, lots of people focus on on different dynamics from elections and you know the the enactment of data sets to kind of transformations of diplomatic practice, security, policing, humanitarianism, and, and so on. And here we have the digital, that's the most often used term, that's been supplemented by uh, datification to render this particular uh, proliferation and production of data in digital form, but data that can be algorithmically processed, again, because we've had data for a really long time. Then we have other terms like cyber, virtual, you know, there's the other um, kind of lineages of cybersecurity um, and so on, which I think it's, it's quite different. What I liked about algorithms is that they are operators, right? So they are, they do something on data, and in that sense, they change things. And it's particular types of algorithms that now work on data, but they work as an assemblage because they need to bring together data. is not enough, right? They need infrastructure. They need people. There is labor that is required, and algorithms hold this together. But I, what I also liked about algorithms it, is that it has a very long history. And it doesn't go to the 17th century, like the word data and, you know, to the modern state and so on. Um, but it's, it's got a non-European, very old history. And that, that resonated with me in the sense in which it allows us to challenge some of the assumptions about what is new, where innovation is happening, what is technological innovation, what does it mean um, for how different states develop design, or rather make and produce technology. Algorithms somehow have these resonances that are not explicit, they're implicit, but when you try, when you start unpacking it, I think they disturb some of the taken-for-granted assumptions about technology. And I like this undercurrent, this disruptive undercurrent, rather than kind of saying, this is the term that should be used all the time. Okay, so I can see that the algorithm is a useful concept to trace all kinds of actors and processes involved in generating and using data. So I wonder, what then is your take on the notion of autonomous technologies? I mean, how autonomous are algorithms? I think that no technology is autonomous. It is always heteronomous, right? No technology, all technologies require human labor. Uh, they all depend on some form of distribution and hierarchy of human and machine labor and also hierarchy of different types of human labor, as you know, um, forms of labor that are themselves gendered and racialized. And you can think here from, you can think of the people who clean the data. The data is not simply used by algorithms, but has to be cleaned. And then what we need to look at in terms of these assemblages, if you want to call them algorithmic assemblages in international politics, are not just the people who use it, whether it's the diplomats or the, or the border guards or the police or the security professionals and the intelligence, but you know, both where the data is coming from, how it is collected, how it is cleaned, uh, how it is processed, right, by whom, and therefore move it away from simply the engineers, the computer scientists, the Silicon Valley, which is not to say that these are not important elements in this in this assemblage. So it's the I think the autonomous carries 
analytical consequences because every time we use autonomous, so if we accept it and we don't unpack it and deconstruct it, I think it has pernicious consequences. Hence, you know, some of the debates about meaningful human control. So this idea of human control and the autonomous technology and the kind of question which points it is autonomous. While if we don't, if we have other terms to actually try to understand what is at stake, um, we don't always have to make that that move, but we start. We can start in the middle, we can start with these operations and start tracing how actually this assemblage, how it is brought together, however tenuously, in different sites. So again, it would be very different for a humanitarian organization, but very different for a, an organization like UNHCR, compared with a much smaller, let's say, humanitarian organization, which does not have these resources and might have to rely on, um, you know, hackathons that maybe some startup or some big companies will do for free to develop some technologies for them that then they are left with, but these technologies are not regularly updated, maintained, and so on, and might stop working or work, you know, be dysfunctional um, very shortly after they had been produced. I mean, this is just one side. There are many debates about what these technologies do and why they are problematic, but just to kind of give you one one example. And I think the algorithm is, helps us hold together these different practices. Hmm. Okay, so so one aspect your research explored and which you discuss in your book is how algorithms shape conceptions of self and other, how they construct identities or categories of identification. Um, can you say a little more about how algorithms do that? So algorithms produce self and other when they are deployed for the purposes of governance. But there is something in the methodological and epistemological work that, um, you know, this machine learning algorithms do that makes them really apt or really attractive for use for, for the purposes of governing. And there are many discussions about why we see all these algorithms that often are seen not to work, right? Or they are biased, they have high failure rates, sometimes, you know, um, they suffer from inaccuracy as often Often people talk also about racist algorithms, which is true, right? A lot of their results have, you know, high rates of inaccuracies that are differentially distributed, right? So that racialized populations are affected very differently by algorithms. So we have all these critiques, but they are rolled out continuously more and more and more and more areas of governance, right? Um, And security is one of the key areas, but it's not the only one in which algorithms are used, and particularly machine learning algorithms that are now more or less equated with artificial intelligence are increasingly used. And I think the reason, one of the reasons, of course, we have the debates about the role of, you know, big tech, debates about, as I was suggesting, about the impasses of some of the governing techniques and, um, you know, the, the responses that these new kind of techniques of government offer. But there is something else in, in this machine learning algorithm that I think has made them particularly attractive for the government of self and And it is what we call in algorithmic reason partitioning. So this machine learning algorithm always work. They always represent any data points or anything can, that's been made into data can be represented spatially into an abstract space. And then they calculate distances and they draw 
distinctions, line, lines of separation. They partition this space based on distance and density, right? So it's a very geometrical, I mean, to be as blank, I used to talk about the geometrical um, logic of governing. It's a very geometrical way of um, rendering distances. And this partitioning then leads to the production of difference that can become otherness, right? It can become dangerous, suspect, uh, difference through partitioning. But what is interesting and unsettling at the same time is that it is a proliferating difference, right? Algorithms never stop producing difference. And they are not along the lines of identity or not only along the lines of identity that we are familiar with. Anything can become an element of difference, right? It could be how quickly you walk, at which time uh, people make phone calls, like all these little elements. I mean, scholars have argued that there is a proliferation of difference with this machine learning algorithm. And I think this is what makes them so attractive and, you know, able to be deployed across so many areas and of social and political life. But of course, it raises a lot of problems because this lines, the way this lines and this partition is made, and partition, I we use the partition because it's the parting, right, the part, um, but also the violence that, you know, this partition of what appears to be a space that's abstract is actually a very embodied violence um, of partition. But this proliferation of difference makes it actually really difficult to to bring it in the remit of critique, right? Because there's always, in a sense, it's less important which difference it is. And we have focused a lot on racialized and gender differences, but there are a lot of other differences that, of course, can act as proxies for racialized and gender difference. But difference can, you know, can be it can be made again and again. There's always another partition and the algorithms never stop as long as they have data, as long as the, you know, the, the, the human labor is there, and I think it's this proliferation and ubiquity of partitioning as difference that is, you know, what algorithms do and what they do also politically. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Um, so we need to pay attention to which partitioning, which data clusters are picked up by human agents and used for what purposes. And I guess how they become then points of identification and tools for categorizing individuals and populations. Um, in this regard, let's move to a site you studied, namely the border. How do algorithms affect bordering practices, how borders operate? And perhaps how do they shape even the ontology of the border as such? So I think when it comes to borders, um we need to think slightly differently about uh, these technologies. I used to say that borders are still very much, or they used to be very much in a kind of statistical um, government of populations rather than, you know, they're maybe entering the algorithmic government of populations. I mean, of course, the use of biometric data now at borders is um, very much reliant on artificial intelligence like facial recognition, but also fingerprints in terms of image recognition, video and image recognition, use artificial intelligence technologies. But most often borders operate through databases, right, structured data and so on. 
Of course, we can extend once we extend bordering practices and we look at the many types of bordering that uh, take place, um, you know, this kind of continuum of bordering that takes place. Um, we can see how these algorithms work, for example, in, you know, policing and so on. And we, I, I use this example also, we use it in the book and in an earlier article of a journalist, Ahmed Zaidan. So this um, example came actually and, and became an example of public controversy in the wake of the Snowden revelations because Ahmed Zaidan, who was, um, he's a journalist, right? An Al Jazeera journalist was actually um, named in one of the, you know, presentation, the PowerPoints from the NSA as a, the result of one of these algorithms that did the kind of partitioning that I was talking about, right? That kind of brought together travel patterns with telephone metadata, of course, and so on. And he appeared to be a suspect as a member of the um, Muslim Brotherhood. And what was interesting that initially lots of people were astounded that a journalist would be actually become a, a target, right? Based on this um, on these NSA slides, and ask how do you make sense this kind of how do we make sense now of this contradiction between somebody who is a journalist and you know at the same time who is thought to be a terrorist and logically we can see why certain travel patterns would actually fit the travel patterns of a journalist that interviews certain people and so on but nonetheless why is this uh, why is this happening and there is something about um, what you know this algorithmic operations that make possible so they work with what we call the idea of, of an anomaly so they look at these discrepancies they are anomalous but they are not one or the other they can be both and then what you uh, mentioned that, in a sense, there are different interpretations, the different kind of epistemic cultures and professionals that come in that deal with this proliferating difference, in this case, the anomaly in different ways. So for security professional, um, the journalist as a suspect can become at the same time a target, given their interest, their longstanding interest in the unknown unknowns, right? In the anomalies, in that which we don't know, that could be there, but we don't know. Um, that would be quite different uh, for the companies. The companies would have an interest, and again, it's quite interesting that, that the language um, of anomaly detection is also connected with micro-targeting, which is the language of marketing and so on. The companies would be interested in this because they can produce, they can sell and just produce other commodities that would speak, for instance, to different people. Of course, the effects are very different, but if you look at the practices and the operations, those are similar. It's just the kind of mode of, of targeting and the politics that, of course, you know, would be different. But there's a question then of how do you engage with this? I mean, Ahmed Zaidan tried to challenge it in court and it went nowhere due to questions of secrecy, but also the opacity of this process is what we know. It came either from the Snowden disclosures or from in investigative journalism. So I think there is something about the intersection between the commercial, the commercial op opacity, um, commercial secrecy with state secrecy, uh, the secrecy around security and what that does exactly given this proliferation, right? given this algorithmic operation that keep producing difference that um, 
out of these anomalies that can be both and, right? And then where we can't logically say it can't be one or the other uh, because they can't even be they can't even be contested. And often we do not know why some of these results how they were arrived at, right? Because of this endless, indefinite kind of partitioning that goes on all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually. I, I do remember, uh, now that you mention it, I do remember there was a time when I was flying to the US um, uh, more or less uh, frequently. Um, and uh, for one or two years, I was always stopped and singled out for searches. And uh, at one point I asked, so why, why, you know, I asked this this this, this border guy, um, wh why am I singled out? And he said, well, I don't know, but uh, do you book last minute? And I said, no. Um, he said, well, um, do you book one way? And I said, no. Um, and then we went all through all these kind of questions. And in the end, it's like, well, you have a funny last name. Maybe it's that. Um, and uh, I said, well, I can change that. Uh, if that enters your database as a problem, um, as an anomaly, then how, how do I get out of this again? Right. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I have no idea. So he basically admitted also that he's basically following whatever his screen tells him to do. But there's an important question of once you are considered an, anom an anomaly by the algorithm, how do you get out of this again? Right? Um, anyway, I didn't want to you know, bring up my own experience, but it, but it does resonate uh, with me. And, and I think now going back to how do, you, how do we study this? Yeah, especially if you say also that the borders as such, that all these different agencies involved, including commercial companies, um, in producing data, in managing data, in, in interpreting data, I mean, where do we see the border? Where is it located? And how do you study that? I mean, there are many ways in which you can study it. I, I'm just going to say something about how I try to study it. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis now in international relations on ethnographic research, but it's really interesting to think about the many limitations of doing ethnographic research, not just in terms of access and opacity that actually our scholars have um, have written about, um, but also in terms of the assumptions of what it means to do ethnographic work in relation to these technologies, but also what it means to know the ideas of kind of thick description. I would also say the kind of maybe similarities or intersections between the type of thick descriptions and the kind of modes of datification and surveillance that we are subjected to. Um, so that's, but that's maybe for another conversation. I. <laughs> Um, I like the, I've used the, the term of thin, thin description, right, as a kind of, in the in this digital age with the proliferation of data and, you know, partitioning and so on, uh, thinking about, actually from ethnographers, and I came across it in the work of uh, Ruha Benjamin, who argued that we, we should think and take seriously this idea of thin description rather than work with thick description, right, which has been for long a mantra of critical research and ethnographic work in IR. Basically, what uh, Tobias and I try to do in the book is to trace uh, algorithmic operations and trace these assemblages that in, in practices of governance through uh, controversies, through struggles, through disputes. So we try to start from disputing processes, the, these moments, and that's the scene when something is, is being open. But the, re the reason we started with this um, with this controversies um, is that we try to avoid having, um, as I said, a kind of a catastrophist 
rendition of what is going on, but also tracing the fact that that is there are always kind of interventions, forms of resistance, frictions. I mean, we talk about resistance, refusal, and friction in the book as kind of um, ways in which these these controversies are politicized. But we see this around. All the technologies, so for instance, around facial recognition, there are calls to ban facial recognition in public spaces. It's interesting that at the same time we have facial recognition on borders, so that you know that's it's a very it's a very hierarchical kind of understanding also of which facial recognition counts. So very uneven, let's say not hierarchical, but very uneven, which is also a recognition of where critique can make a difference, where critique can intervene, and the fact that some of the spaces are actually much more closed than critique, and you know it's much more difficult to make a difference, but you know through these critical interventions, and you know this is one of them. But of course, all the debates around um, you know bias in algorithm. Uh, around um, you know these colonial lineages they have all played a role right in the public sphere they have given rise to controversies and you often hear this you know the scientists and the engineers they don't this these controversies don't pass them by become part of their practice and in that sense it was an interesting way to open up these debates in a different way by by not assuming who the key actors are and who has a voice and who can speak and you know challenge the effects of these technologies but by attending to these controversies also trying to understand these very uneven effects of technologies and trying to understand what they do through these various scenes and this was another way of actually dealing with the international as well because it's where do you when you talk about this assemblage where do you start and how do you try to map some of the kind of the circulations of technologies and, you know, the algorithmic reason beyond, you know, a particular site and kind of the scenes, the scenes of controversy allowed us to do it. Can you give a few examples of what were the scenes? Where actually did you go to witness these controversies? So a lot, the, the one that I mentioned about Ahmed Zaidan, so of course it became public in the wake of the Snowden um, disclosures, but it kept unfolding over years and years as, for instance, investigative journalists did more work, as um, academics and other activists, um, you know, mobilized, as, um, you know, Zaidan, and yes, so it got a lot of, you know, coverage. There was a lot of public debate about that. And then there was a legal case in the US that again made its way through the courts un until it was closed. So it was it was following this kind of debates. We also took a scene of controversies, for instance, around predictive policing. And there again we looked at the activists, right, both local activists and academics challenging, right, trying to contest the use of predictive policing by the companies, um, the development, you know, the kind of technology that is used and how it is used by police forces. And there, for instance, we um, we asked one of the companies that actually had made open its algorithm. I mean, now it's, it's kind of disappeared, so it's quite interesting. One of the companies tried to create its business model out of making its algorithm open so it could be checked against bias. 
So anyone, I mean, it still assumes a particular citizen who is kind of skilled and ready to undertake this auditing process of this algorithm and therefore then builds back into its, uh, into its business model. But again, this openness kind of allowed us to uh, to look at the documentation that they had about the algorithm and, and so on in the context of this scene of controversy around predictive policing. And then we asked them what data they use and you could use. And then they told us that could use the data from the Chicago police force. So we could both trace the controversies, but find how different, um, you know, how this scene kind of opens up to different actors. And there you can start tracing you know, documents, developments, and different actors. So when studying all these processes, um, can I ask, how have you dealt with the challenge of working across disciplines? I mean, it's been pretty clear that you've, you know, did significant work in the um, field of computer science, crossing IR to technology studies, but that comes with challenges. Um, how did you master that? I think paying attention to these other vocabularies, right, and kind of, to me, the work of concepts is really, really important um, because I think every discipline, including computer science, has a lot of, maybe I would say computer science, not, not necessarily, you know, concepts in the way we would use it, but a lot of terms that do important work that we need to take seriously um, in IR and kind of bring them back to some of the questions that we need to ask rather than just kind of redeploy the same conceptual vocabularies that no but that also then of course requires not only a sensitivity to different vocabularies and languages but uh, also a skill of translation right translating them from one field to another so that that i think is, is something that i think ir scholars are only now realizing the importance of not only understanding and accessing other conceptual languages but also um how do you transport them and translate them for for a different audience. So yeah, I, I I hear and see that that is a really important part of your work. Now, um, I mean, I, I would love to continue the conversation forever, but we have to sort of come to a close soon. But in that regard, do you feel that, you know, zooming out again, do you feel that the way digital te technologies now shape or operate in international politics, do you feel that scholars of international relations have the conceptual and methodological vocabulary or toolkit to grasp those processes? Or are we behind? I mean, you mentioned quite a few works that do deal with this, but on the whole, are we really prepared to study and understand what's going on in this regard? I think scholars are doing this work. And um, if I may, I want to add with another article, with another with another example, because I think it, it shows one of the ways in which I think this can be done successfully while, you know, telling us something about our debates in IR too. And I'm thinking here of an article published in, um, in Surveillance and Society, which is a surveillance studies journal, but I think it speaks a lot to questions of international relations and questions in critical security studies by Daniel Adler Duarte, who analyzes a crime prediction app that was developed in Rio de Janeiro, um, not by the police, but by a, a think tank, which worked also as a private company and um, local police. And what the, you know, what the app tried to do, of course, it tried to anticipate to predict these incidences of crime, but it was intended for citizens, tourists, and so on. 
And what Daniel does is actually try to trace, you know, this development of the app through these many translations, talking of translations that have to take place through the frictions, right, and through controversies that happen in this kind of development uh, of this app, of these technologies. And he's arguing, on the one hand, that we should not presume what technology does, right? So we should not jump to conclusions. So if we are to engage with these technologies in international relations, really we need to um, attend to these practices and to these translations, frictions, and, and so on. But we also need to rethink our assumptions about what technologies do in terms of practices of othering, right? The, the reproduction of, for example, um, racialized conditions and racialized geographies, like, for example, the geographies of the favelas in Rio de Janeiro, right? And he's showing that, of course, it is not the racialization is not at work, right? But it might not take place as, it, as we expect, right, if we actually analyze these uh, technologies. So, for instance, while the imaginary areas of the favela as, you know, places of crime, of insecurity, of violence are, you know, kind of underpinning a lot of the security imaginaries, I show that, that in, the, in the case of this app called Crime Radar, right, favela, favelas effectively did not produce enough data. So, you know, at some point the developers decided not to represent them, right, as such. As, so they could not become high crime risk areas. Okay, um, I take so many things from this. Um, above all, that we need to be careful with our assumptions of how digital technologies interact with and impact political realities and practices, and that we need to pay attention to algorithms, how they operate, what they do with data, how they're used, and what this does to our understanding of the space of international politics, who the important actors are in that space. And I also think you made it pretty clear that we have to develop concepts and methodological approaches to make these dynamics visible and intelligible. And so in that regard, Claudia, the research that you and others do linking IR with science and technology studies is so important. So thanks again for sharing your insights on this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. <laughs>